Well, we're uh, at that point of the teaching time in our service, and we're excited to uh, jump back into this discussion on the covenants. So um, while we are in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm going to ask if you take your Bibles and turn all the way back to the beginning to Genesis, and we're going to start there. We're going to get to Hebrews eventually, maybe not today, but eventually through Genesis and other Old Testament passages. So as you're turning, let me just say that we have taken, as you know, a short detour away from Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13. That's the next passage or section that we need to be developing. We did that in order to develop a very short theology of covenants, a theology of covenants, since our understanding of God's covenants will greatly inform our understanding of this passage in Hebrews chapter 8. We started last time, or last week, talking about that which is willed in heaven would be done on earth. We actually opened that up and spent a lot of time talking about what God has determined in heaven to be done on earth will be done on earth. And that's really what we pray for, according to Jesus' form prayer in Matthew 6. And this truth certainly includes the covenant that God made with Christ in eternity past, that we are calling the eternal covenant of redemption. We spent a lot of time opening that up. God promised Christ to give people a people to him, which Christ himself would then die to redeem. That's basically what we opened up and uh, elaborated on. So God's will in heaven then must become historical. All right? And once creation was established, God did begin to fulfill his eternal covenant of redemption. He did it and, and is doing it progressively through a series of lesser covenants that he makes with man. And they are all, they're all different from each other, these various covenants that God makes with man. Some are conditional, others are unconditional, but they all have one thing in common. They advance in a progressive way the fulfillment of God's heavenly, eternal covenant of redemption. That's what they're doing. All throughout history, this is how God fulfills that eternal covenant. Now, the number of covenants, as I said last time, it is debated in the framework of covenant theology. Uh, some number them as few as six, and others as many as eight. But we will entertain the majority of them starting today. So I hope you're excited. Before we look uh, at the first one we, we, uh, that God makes we, with man, we might ask this question. How do we know exactly that God determined <clears throat> excuse me, to fulfill his covenant of redemption by a series of lesser covenants that he would make with man? How do we know that? Well, it's a fair question, and it's a good one. So let's answer it. The answer is actually that Scripture tells us. The New Testament has references to this, in fact. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, this. He says, Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this. It's very interesting, but notice that Paul's phrase in verse 12 
covenants of promise. It's a very interesting phrase. The word covenant, uh, which is singular most of its occurrences throughout the New Testament, is plural here, covenants. And the fact that the word promise is singular would mean that the covenants are all bound together in some form or fashion, specifically in that they promote or fulfill this particular promise. Many covenants have to do with one promise. What are they? Well, Paul explains that unconverted Gentiles, that's you and I, have no share in Israel's heritage. We belong neither to God's people nor to their Messiah. We were not recipients of these many covenants that I'll tell you about in just a few moments that were made and that promoted the single promise of redemption. See, um, some will say that Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants uh, are the covenants that have to do with the promise. But I, as I hope to show you, I would say that all God's covenants throughout history had to do with the promise of redemption. So the covenants of promise are the covenants that God made starting with Adam and all throughout until we get to the time of Jesus Christ. These covenants, which are lesser covenants than the covenant of redemption, are meant to fulfill the promise that God made with Christ in eternity past. Now, I might also point out that uh, we who were far off and brought near through the redemption of Christ and now are saved Gentiles, we share in this heritage. We share in it. So all the covenants that God makes are connected to this covenant of redemption in that they are God's means of fulfilling it. So we have time to look at only three this morning, all right? Only three. Let me introduce the first one to you this way. We know that God's eternal purpose was to create a people for himself by Jesus' redemptive work. We know that. But Adam and Eve would, n- would know nothing of that until after the fall. And that's because they weren't in need of redemption before the fall. So the first covenant that God makes in human history is with Adam before the fall. And we're calling it the covenant of works. The covenant of works. Like the covenant of redemption, this one is nowhere called a covenant in the text of Genesis, as as we'll look in just a few moments. The word doesn't occur there in the particular text, and, and, and... And even though it doesn't, it doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't a covenant there or some uh, arrangement, of course, that God made with Adam that had stipulations and promises and consequences. In fact, there was a covenant, and the first to recognize it as a covenant and even call it one was the prophet Hosea. That's right. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, the prophet quotes God regarding sinful Israel, and this is what God says. But like Adam, they have violated the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously with me. That's Hosea 6, 7. What covenant did Adam violate that Israel, a few hundred years later, would would imitate Adam and also violate a covenant. See, Hosea suggests that Adam was in a covenant relationship with God in the garden before the fall and that he transgressed it. 
So this reference becomes more than just curious when we actually read Paul's explanation in Romans 5 of both Adam and Christ as heads of a people that each represents, and his explanation of their headship makes the best sense if we understand that God made a covenant with Jesus in eternity past and with Adam before the fall. More on that later. Let me say again that the absence of the word covenant is no proof that there wasn't one. God clearly promised Adam abundant life in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And if we understand life to be the opposite of death in the fullest sense of death, to incorporate eternal condemnation, or as John says in the book of Revelation, the second death, then life would have to mean eternal life. The bottom line is this. Had Adam obeyed the Lord at the very beginning, he would have received eternal life, the kind that awaits every Christian in full in heaven someday. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But Adam disobeyed the Lord, and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he was condemned. You can't get around those facts. There was a promise. There were these parameters or stipulations to the promise. There were consequences. We have the the makings of a conditional covenant right here. Adam's destiny depended upon whether he would exercise faith in the Lord and obey his word or trust something else and disobey the Lord's word. All right? At that point in human history, Adam had the ability to obey or disobey the Lord. He had that ability. He lost it in the fall. So where do we find this covenant? Well, we find it in two places in the book of Genesis. If you're in Genesis chapter 1, let me show you uh, verses uh, 28 to 30. It said, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which is fruit yielding its seed. It shall be food for you. And to every animal on the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. That's Genesis 1, 28 to 30. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 15. Verse 15 to 17, Moses continues what God says. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the middle of the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it you will certainly die. So, God promises Adam death for disobedience. That is, eternal death, death in the fullest form, condemnation. But don't overlook the blessings that are implicit here. Adam's obedience would be the exact opposite, eternal life. 
That is, physical life would not end and spiritual life would also never end. There would be a personal relationship with God for eternity. Adam's earthly state would have transformed into a glorified one in some, in some way, maybe through eating of the, of the tree of life. To signify that, in fact, to signify the fact of eternal life, God planted the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of life, which confirmed God's promise of eternal life that Adam would enjoy if he trusted the Lord's counsel. Once again, if Adam and Eve met the conditions of this covenant by trusting God's word and not transgressing his command until such a time as God determined was enough, they would have entered eternal life. Now this is why when they failed, God expelled them from the garden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever. That's what it says in the text. Now you ought to know that that some have problems with the covenant of works because, as they explain, uh, not only is the word covenant not there, and we've already addressed that, but they go on to say this would be the only instance in the Bible where salvation was by works and not by faith. I have two things to say in response to that. In the first place, this argument is at best an oversimplification and a misunderstanding of this covenant. Um, Adam was not a fallen being when God made this covenant with him. So salvation is not strictly in view. Adam doesn't need to be saved from anything. What is in view was the potential for Adam to grow into the full state of abundant life, which God had originally intended for Adam. In the second place, the covenant of works does not teach that eternal life was merited in any way or would have been. God condescended, he stooped to Adam to create a personal relationship with Adam right from the beginning. So if Adam did obey the Lord, his experience of abundant life and eternal life would rest on God's grace, not on human merit. So that's very important to understand, but that's a response to to this really caricature uh, of... uh, of the reform position of the covenant of works. In fact, even the Westminster divines believe this as well. Greg Nichols, um, well-known scholar, um, puts it this way in his systematic theology, quote, they, speaking of the Westminster divines, did not allege that the attainment of life and blessedness before the fall was on the basis of meritorious works apart from divine condescension, They merely asserted that God promised life on the condition of perfect personal obedience, end quote. So Adam Adam wouldn't have merited eternal life because God's grace established the covenant to begin with. But let me go further. What's more, and in the second, my second answer to this, is that the Apostle Paul actually confirms in Romans 7 that God's commandments were designed to give eternal life to the one who would obey them perfectly. Did you hear that? Paul says in Romans 7 that God's commandments, the law, were designed to give eternal life to the one who would obey them perfectly. You say, what do you mean about that? Well, he says in verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. 
It would appear that God's commandments and later the law were originally intended to impart life to the one who could keep them perfectly. Adam had the ability to keep them perfectly before the fall. That's why the covenant of works uh, is, is a viable covenant. God didn't create a robot, you see. He created Adam with the will to choose whether to obey the Lord and live or transgress his word and die. As we all know, he chose to disobey and die. After death, a fallen Adam was incapable of now choosing to obey the Lord again unless God redeemed him. God did redeem Adam, as we'll see in a moment, but his descendants would still be born in a fallen state with the inability to choose God and live. They would be incapable of trusting and obeying the Lord because of their fallen state. So Paul says here that God's commandments were originally intended to give life, but now they condemn life. See? They condemn life. So let's establish then what the significance of the covenant between God and Adam really is. What is the significance of this? Well, the first thing we might say is that it shows us that God cared enough for Adam to stoop low in love and have a relationship with him that was personal, for one thing. God took the initiative to establish this covenant relationship with Adam. He took the initiative. And and Adam was not a contributing partner in the making of this covenant. It was purely of God's grace that he established parameters for their relationship and he explained to Adam exactly how they would commune with each other. And God, beloved, has always displayed his grace and defined the only way of approaching and communing with him since the very beginning of time. It's always been that way. As for the covenant of works, God gave Adam conditions in which to live and stipulations and commandments to follow for his good. For to transgress them would mean death for Adam, as we all know, happened. What else is the significance of this covenant? Well, it proves that God's standard for a relationship with him is perfection. It is always that, nothing less. You want to have a relationship with God Almighty? You must be perfect. As I've already mentioned, Perfect obedience to God's law leads to eternal life. And that's an ironclad principle that is still true today, and it will always be true. Of course, it is impossible for anyone to achieve. That's what the law tells us now. Aside from the fact that we all sin at a very early age when we're unaware of the consequences of our own actions, We also sinned in Adam. This is Paul's teaching very clearly in Romans. As David put it, we were conceived in sin. We come out of the womb at odds with God. That is one of the tragic consequences of Adam's fall. There was only one man, only one, who was born without a sin nature and never sinned either in thought or deed, and that man is the God-man, Jesus Christ more on our Lord in just a few moments. Here's another significant, another significant teaching of the covenant of works, and that is that it confirms that the wages of sin is death. Enough said there. One final significance 
is this. The covenant of works provided a context. Listen very carefully. The covenant of works provided a context for Adam and Eve to see that they truly were in need of redemption. This is very much, uh, they rather were very much in need of a Savior. And that brings us then to the next covenant. We're calling it the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Now up to this point in, in human history, before the fall, Adam enjoys a brief time of joy and contentment, living in perfect fellowship with God. He knows nothing of the eternal covenant of redemption that God made already with Jesus Christ in eternity past. Nothing whatsoever. There was no need for him to know this because he was not in need of redemption. But all that changes after the fall, after he, after he breaks the covenant of works with God. Once Adam sins, well, redemption is now necessary. So God makes another covenant with Adam after the fall. In Genesis 3, we see more opportunity of this marvelous grace of our loving Lord, as the hymn goes. Adam sins. God runs to find him. I love this. Actually, Adam runs from God. He hides from God. God seeks him out. God confronts him. God rescues him. God's grace seeks out and redeems Adam. This is all of grace, right? You're picking up that, I hope. He reestablishes a relationship with Adam, but not at the expense of justice. God couldn't just say to Adam, well, you know what, that's okay. You're good. God does not give Adam or show Adam mercy at the expense of justice. Justice comes because of mercy. Please understand that. Adam died. That's true. Spiritually, he died immediately. And physically, he began to show, uh, he began the slow process of death that would take 900 years. But he died. He returned to the dust. But make no mistake, God couldn't just save Adam without paying the penalty of his sin, right? Yes. God shows him mercy, but not at the expense of justice. There must be just punishment for Adam's sin. Who, then, would pay for Adam's sin so that God could restore Adam to a right relationship with himself again? Well, the answer to that question is the essence of the covenant of redemption that we examined last week. Jesus would pay the penalty for Adam's sin, and not just for Adam but for a great many of Adam's progeny, too, Adam's descendants. I'd submit to you that God told Adam and Eve about this marvelous plan of redemption. How do we know that? Well, by several indications from the text of Genesis. All right, here we go. One indication is the very covenant that God makes to redeem a people from Adam's fallen race. Let me show you that. God makes this covenant with Adam and his godly seed that would come from the woman. It's, especially, it's specifically that God would rescue them from sin, eternal death, and the bondage of Satan by destroying Satan and his slavish death grip that he has on them. This is really the covenant of redemption restated. By this time, this time round, God brings man into it and makes a covenant with the woman's seed that would constitute a godly line in Christ. 
Theologians call this the covenant of grace. Here's here's where salvation history begins in the history of the world. From Genesis 3 onward, God's plan of redemption would be operational, redeeming sinful people and establishing a special relationship with them. And each of the covenants will develop that further. And and, and let's look at Genesis 3 just to see how this works. Genesis 3 is at the same time one of the saddest texts in the Bible and one of the most glorious. Why do I say that? Well, it records Adam's willful disobedience and with it the terrible consequences of death and curses. It becomes the backdrop, however, that highlights God's saving grace. Genesis 3.15 And I will make enemies of you and the woman, he is speaking to the serpent, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There it is, covenant of grace. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're you're thinking, how is this a covenant? It, it, It doesn't sound remotely like one. And that's a fair observation. I mean, after all, in all God's covenants, he addresses those that he's cutting the covenant with directly. But here, he's speaking directly to Satan himself, not a godly line of people. We know that from the previous verse. Moses writes, then the Lord said to the serpent. And we also know, for reasons that we won't get into right now, that the serpent represents Satan. or Satan is behind the serpent, using the serpent as his means to deceive Eve and so on. What's more, all of God's other covenants are his solemn pledges of his favor and blessing. But in this case, God declares curses and pronounces judgment and condemnation. So you can imagine why there would be a good amount of skepticism about calling this a covenant. But just as the Ten Commandments, negatively worded pronouncements, you shall not at the same time also implies their positive side, you shall, right? You shall not make other gods for yourself, or you shall not have any other god before you, really means that you shall worship the Lord your God only. So the negative also implies the positive. So it is with this covenant that emphasizes God's plan to destroy Satan. At the same time, It also implies God's solemn promise to emancipate Eve and her seed from the bondage of Satan. The fact that the word covenant doesn't occur, again, doesn't take away from the fact that God is making a solemn pledge to accomplish salvation for the godly line of the woman's seed. And and why are we calling it a covenant of grace? Well, that should be obvious. It's about God's pledge that he alone would accomplish redemption for the seed of the woman. Now, we read from our 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith in unison this morning. We said, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. Remember? The seed that the confession mentions is none other than Jesus Christ. So let me surmise, I'm sorry, summarize what what we've said so far about this covenant of grace. God declares war on Satan to destroy him in hell and to redeem Eve and her seed. 
which God would accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ, who was also Eve's seed. Jesus is the one who bruises Satan on the head and destroys his work. God gives the first couple an elect seed to defeat their arch enemy. That's Christ. Now, once the covenant is laid out in verse 15, Adam and Eve learn more of its application. Also, by the way, God went about redeeming them on the basis of Christ's work yet to come. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is a rather pregnant verse. What we infer from it is that God had to sacrifice animals before he could get their skins, right? So that's what he did. He shed their blood, and then he clothed Adam and Eve. The word for um, garments is the word tunic, uh, much, much more... Um, concealing than a fig leaf, the tunic would be from the neck down just to above the knee. So it covered them quite a bit. They would learn through this ordeal that the remission of sin requires the shedding of blood of a perfect substitute. And that substitute would be the seed of the woman, Messiah. So God gives them an object lesson by sacrificing animals instead and then covering them, the blood of the animals covering their sin, which was to point ahead to the day that Messiah would shed his blood and cover their sin. Now finally, the last clue that God told the first couple about the gospel and the covenant of grace is that the New Testament gives plenty of evidence that the Old Testament saints knew of God's plan of salvation, about Messiah who would come, die, rise from the dead, conquer death, and save a people for God's sake. It's all over the New Testament. The gospel, you see, was preached and taught to the first couple who then passed it along to the next generation, the seed of woman, who then would pass it on to their next generation of the remnant of Israel and so on. This is why Jesus rebukes the two disciples that he walked with on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember this? After Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to two disciples, his disciples, who didn't recognize him at first. They're walking to the road on the road to Emmaus, and they were all downcast. And Jesus asked them, why are you downcast? And they go on to say, well, because Jesus was, was crucified and he, and, he was, and he was buried. And there go our hopes. We thought he was the Messiah to, to come and save us. But, oh well, I guess not. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Jesus, however, says, Luke 24, verse 25 and 20, uh, 20 to 27, You foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Are you still, are you still wondering if the Old Testament taught the gospel? Of course it did. In fact, we haven't time to examine other clear evidences in the New Testament that the Old Testament believers believed in the same gospel that you and I did. But there's plenty there. So here we have God, out of the ruins of humanity, due to Adam's sin, recreating life through a redemptive process that he and Jesus covenanted together 
to, uh, back in eternity past. God now divulges that plan to Adam and Eve in what is called the covenant of grace. They see that it's needed because of the covenant of works and how Adam failed. Now, before we look at the third covenant today, I want, to, I want you to see the benefit of understanding the covenant of grace against the context of the covenant of works. That would be the way Adam would have understood it. You see, the Apostle Paul helps us out in Romans chapter 5 to see this very contrast. We heard it read today in our scripture reading from verses 12 to 21. I don't have time to give you an exposition of this marvelous chapter at this time. I simply want to call to your memory the comparison that Paul makes here between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and what the second Adam, Jesus, accomplished that the first Adam failed to accomplish. Adam didn't keep the covenant of works. Therefore, he brought death to the human race. But Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. He kept the law perfectly and demonstrated that in both thought and deed. That's why it's important to see the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace together. There's much more we could say, but this is more of a survey of covenants than than anything else. So let me hasten on. We have considered the covenant of redemption that God made in eternity past with the second member of the Trinity. We saw that last time. Now in history, God begins to fulfill it by means of a series of lesser covenants that he makes with man. The first of these is the covenant of works, which basically shows man's need of a savior. Since far from meeting God's demands of perfection for eternal life, he violates them, sins, and dies. Second covenant, then, is the covenant of grace which is God's eternal covenant of redemption, slightly modified. That is, God makes this covenant now with his elect from Adam's race, the godly line that would come from the seed of the woman. They are godly only in Christ, of course. And Christ is the one who must fulfill the terms of the covenant for them. That is why it is called the covenant of grace. God condescended. He stooped in his love to make this covenant uh, known and then even provides the means of fulfilling it for its recipients. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of grace for all humanity, for all those who believe. From here on out, through the rest of the Bible, all the covenants that unfold in history are based on the covenant of grace, all right? And that brings us to the next covenant, and that would be the Noahic covenant. This is the last one we'll look at today. This covenant has two parts to it. God makes it first with Noah alone, and then he makes it with Noah and his family, and all mankind by extension, and even the animals. In the first part, God makes a covenant with Noah. We see it in Genesis 6, verse 13. The end of humanity has come before me, God says to Noah, for the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Then God makes a covenant with Noah. I am making a covenant with you. Then God later makes a universal covenant with Noah, and this time with others, his family, all of humanity, and the animals. That's in chapter 9, verses 18 to 19. 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thi uh, thing of, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Now, there's more to this, obviously. God commands Noah to build the ark, how to build the ark, when to board it, and with whom. And then God closes the door of the ark, and he destroys all of humanity with the earth, or, or every, everything on the earth, rather, saving only those eight human beings alone with the animals on the ark. Now, the covenant with Noah was conditional, which meant that Noah... Uh, would have obeyed the conditions, or he would have died with the rest of humanity. That's what it means by conditional. There was no question, though, that he wouldn't obey. Noah found favor with the, in the eyes of the Lord, it says in, in Genesis 6-8. Unlike all of mankind at that time, which was wicked, and every intention of the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually, Noah was a genuine worshiper. He no doubt heard the gospel from his parents, believed, and was sa a saved individual. He was in that godly line from the seed of the woman. In chapter 7, then, God confirms this. He says to Noah, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. So, God, so godly Noah accepts the conditions of the covenant. He builds the ark. More than this, during its 120-year construction, he went out and preached to the lost to repent and come with him. He made provisions for the animals, and I love this part, he made provision for worshiping the Lord at the end of the flood. This is another indication that Noah was true, a true believer. God instructs Noah in chapter 7, verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of every clean animal, and a male and female, and two of the animals that are not clean. What's that all about? Well, clean animals referred in the Levitical law later to animals that were um, eligible for sacrificing. Not all animals were eligible for sacrificing, only the clean ones. So the clean animals, male and female, uh, Noah took, and he later offered them to the Lord as a burnt offering on an altar that he built after they left the ark. So Noah understood the principle of there being no remission of sin without the blood of a perfect substitute. In other words, he knew and believed the gospel. Now the other part of the Noahic covenant is the one that God makes after the flood with Noah and at this time with the family and the rest of humanity by extension and all the animals. It was an unconditional, universal covenant, and we read it in chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I myself am establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every animal on the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, every animal on the earth. God promises never to destroy humanity with a flood again, and he sets a rainbow in the sky as his sign of this covenant promise. Because this covenant is universal and unconditional, that is, its fulfillment rests on God's faithfulness alone to make good his promises, it rests completely on God's grace. And we're back to God's grace again. Now, there's so much 
to this particular context that we simply cannot address, especially the strong parallels between the flood narrative uh, and to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, even down to the universal commands to rule and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So when you have some time, I would recommend that you check out the comparison. You will be enriched by it. But our concerns have to do more with how this particular covenant furthers the covenant of grace. So with that, let me draw this to a close with some sound application that comes out of our understanding of how the Noahic covenant furthers the covenant of grace. Are you ready? Three things. First, the Noahic covenant. In the Noahic covenant, we have God's divine pledge to everyone everywhere that humanity will not be destroyed again by a flood. And that should motivate people to respond to God in a godly way. God's promise that he will not destroy humanity with a flood, but rather preserve them, should motivate people to respond to God in a godly way. Let me develop that for you. With the help of other New Testament passages, we know that there is a time coming when God will destroy the earth with fire. But that's not until the end of time as we know it, where he judges all humanity. And you can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 3. So until the great judgment of God, God's will is to preserve humanity. This is the grace of God. So that people everywhere in every generation can experience the common grace of God. The common grace of God promotes the tranquil and quiet life that Paul commands Christians to pray for in 1 Timothy 2. Do you remember that prayer? First two verses. First of all, Paul says, I urge that requests, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I would say that Americans are not experiencing this kind of lifestyle right now. What do you think? And that's because of depraved people in government who are corrupt and are hostile to to the God of the Bible. All the more reason why we must pray, as Paul directs us here, so that people can experience and come to know the grace of God. But why is it so important for people in the world to experience and recognize God's grace? Well, that's because God's common grace gives people incentive to repent. That's why. Read in the first We read the first three verses of 1 Timothy 3. Here's verse 4. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Enjoying God's common grace means that people in the world have opportunity to hear more about it in the form of the gospel and to respond to it. The divine kindness of God expressed in the unconditional and universal Noahic covenant to preserve humanity until the end, motivates all of Noah's descendants to repent and believe. Paul actually says it this way in Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 
So God's promise to preserve the human race until the judgment allows the gospel to be proclaimed and the godly seed of woman, God's elect, to hear, believe, and be saved from the bondage of sin and Satan. Number two. The flood narrative leaves a reminder in the sky, the sign of God's promise of preservation, which is also meant to solicit a sobering and right response from unbelievers. It is the rainbow. Here in Scripture, the rainbow means something very different than it has come to mean today. It is there also to warn humanity to take God's warning of coming judgment and therefore his call to repent and trust the gospel seriously. Jesus makes this connection quite clearly in Matthew 24. Our Lord says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So, will the coming of the Son of Man be? Number three. The flood narrative is instructive even for those of us who have been saved by the gospel. How does it instruct us? Listen to 2 Peter 3. I mentioned it a little while ago. Now let me read it for you. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 7, and then verses 11 to 12. I think they're self-explanatory. Know this first of all, That in the last days mockers will come and with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Since all these things are are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in in holy conduct in godliness, looking for the hastening, uh, looking and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Hmm. In other words, those of us in the godly line of the scene of the woman, God's elect, who have been saved already, we need to live soberly, and in such a way that will draw people's attention to the seriousness of God's commands, especially the one to repent and believe the gospel. Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word.